Well, greetings and welcome everybody once again to the Rec Poker Podcast, officially sponsored by Running Aces. I'm your host, Steve Fredland, and I'm excited that this week we finally kick off the long-awaited book club book discussion of Jonathan Little's book, Secrets of Professional Tournament Poker, Volume 1. It's a packed, uh, packed discussion, a long episode. I uh, hope you're going to enjoy it, so I don't want to belabor this with uh, a lot of extra things. Now, just know we got All In For Africa coming up October 28th. Uh, we got about 35 bounties already on board for that thing, so it's going to be a great time. Let me know if you need any more details on that. So this episode, uh, what you're going to hear is first you're going to hear some audio from Jonathan Little welcoming you to the uh, book discussion. And then uh, after a quick commercial, we will do a uh, Jonathan's more in-depth discussion of Section 1, which covers Chapters 1 through 4 of the book. And then we'll turn it right over to a discussion that I had with a number of recreational players as we talked about that first section and what kind of stood out to us. So hopefully you're going to enjoy this. It's a different format than what we've done in the past. So it's either going to be great or you're not going to like it, one of the, one of the two. Uh, but we're going to do this for the next five weeks and kind of dig into that book a little bit. And then after that, we've got a number of formatting changes, and I think you're going to love uh, some of the in-depth discussion of some specific strategy things with people like Jonathan Little and Kuvang and Fox Wallace and Mike Schneider. I think you're going to love that too. So this is a little bit of a change from what we normally do, but uh, let's give it a shot. Give me your feedback if you like it. Uh, certainly there's plenty of other books that we can do a similar thing with. So uh, please let me know either way. So with that, let me turn it over to Jonathan Little. Hello, everyone. This is Jonathan Little. I want to thank you all for being here on the Rec Poker Podcast. I'm excited the Rec Poker has chosen to do one of my books for their first virtual book study. I think this is a fantastic idea. And I do know that I've learned a ton at poker from working with my peers and studying the game together. And I'm very excited that you will be first starting with Secrets of Professional Tournament Poker Volume 1. This is the first tournament book I ever wrote. And I wrote it with the idea that it would be a timeless book. And it has turned out to be a timeless book where the goal is to teach you how to play and think about poker, not how to, you know, beat specific types of opponents or how to play exactly today. The goal of this book was to teach you how to be a strong poker player indefinitely. So I'm incredibly excited that you all will be doing that. For those who do not know me, I am a professional poker player. I have been since 2003. I have about $6.2 million in live tournament earnings. But at the same time, you know, I started off small. I started with a $50 deposit and grinded it up, mainly playing uh, Limit Hold'em before No Limit Hold'em was even a thing online, and then also Sit and Goes, and then eventually I switched to multi-table tournaments. So um, if you're a multi-table tournament player, this series is especially for you. Um, that said, there is a lot of information in the book about how to play deep stack, so it also certainly applies to cash games. So if you are looking to improve your game, I suggest you participate in this book club. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack has the best poker room in Minnesota, featuring 24-7 promos on all cash poker games, including earning $2 per hour in comps, plus the most player-friendly tourney structures. Visit RunAces.com for daily promotions and the tournament calendar. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack, the official sponsor of Rec Poker. Today, I'm going to be talking to you briefly about the first few chapters of the book. So section one of Secrets of Professional Tournament Poker is titled How Tournaments Work, and this is 
an important thing that you just must comprehend if you want to understand why you're playing tournaments, how to beat tournaments, etc. So the first thing you have to understand is why tournaments are so profitable. And a lot of people have ideas for why tournaments are profitable. A lot of people just think the players are bad. And, you know, some players are bad. But at the same time, you have to understand that, say you normally could either be playing $200 buy-in tournaments or a $1, $2 cash game where you buy in for $200. In tournaments, when you buy in immediately, you are playing with a $200 stack, and that's what what your stack is worth. But as you double up and double up and double up and get towards the end of the tournament, you're often playing with incredibly deep stacks of, not necessarily in terms of big blinds, but in terms of buy-in. So if you have, let's say, 10 starting stacks, your stack is worth roughly $2,000. And if your opponents are presumably weaker than you are because you studied the game a lot, then you get to play for large amounts of money with an edge, which is fantastic. And by the time you get to the end of a final table, you're playing for huge stakes. I mean, if you're playing in a world poker tour for event, for example, where first place is maybe $500,000, well, you just never get to play for $500,000 if you normally buy in for a $3,000 cash game or, you know, something like that. So anyway, you get to play for huge amounts of money sometimes versus weak players. And, you know, you don't get to play for the huge amounts of money all the time, but when you do, you often have a huge amount of equity if you are a good player and you've studied the game. So um, chapter two of the book discusses the fundamentals and uh, you certainly need to understand pot odds and the important position, importance of position and whatnot. But I, I think a concept that a lot of amateur players really don't fully grasp is the idea of expected value. And that essentially means that you're not going to win or lose every single time in a specific spot. Like for example, if you get it all in with pocket aces before the flop, you are going to win about 80% of the time. So what does that mean? Well, it means you're going to lose 20% of the time and you're going to win 80% of the time. And I think a lot of amateur players think when they get it all in with pocket aces, they are, you know, quote unquote, supposed to win 100% of the time because they had aces. But you're not. You're supposed to lose 20% of the time and that is just how poker works. And so the way it works is say you get it all in for, let's say, I don't know, $100 worth of chips. Like say you're playing a cash game, get it all in for $100. um, And your opponent puts all in for $100 you own 80% of that pot. So the way you'd figure out your equity in that scenario, your expected value, is you take the total pot, which is now $200, you're 100 plus your opponent's 100, multiply that times 0.8, which will be $160, and that's how much of that total pot you own. So you put in 100, you're getting out 160 on average, so you're profiting $60 on average. Notice that does not mean you're profiting $100 on average, because you're not going to win every single time. And this applies to well, every single poker situation. Anytime you're putting money in the pot, you have some expected value with that bet. And you want to be making sure, ideally, that you're putting in money when you have a positive expected value. Um, this can also manifest itself where you're getting great pot odds. So say you know you're going to win 20% of the time, right? But your opponent bets, let's say, one-tenth the size of the pot even though you're not going to win very often at all, only 20% of the time, you should certainly stick around because you only need to win, let's say, one in, plus for, sim- for simplicity, you need to win one in 10 times, but you know you're going to win two in 10 times, you know, 20%. So you're winning way more often than you should, and that means you're going to be profiting in that scenario, even though you're going to lose this pot 20 or 80% of the time, and that is perfectly acceptable. Um, the, the next 
sections we move into discuss deep stacked play. And I think that deep stacked play is where poker is often the most fun. And that's because you really can get away with a lot. So a main concept whenever you are playing very deep is you want to think ahead in the hand. You want to think what is going to happen if I bet or if I raise or if I check. And you want to ensure that you are taking lines that lead to beneficial situations for you. So for example, say you have a reasonable draw. If you if someone bets and you decide to raise, you want to have an idea in your head of how often are you going to get re-raised? And if you do get re-raised, how will you continue? If you're going to get re-raised a ton, well, you probably don't want to raise where you're drawn in the first place because you'd rather just see the turn card where you're drawn. However, if your opponents are going to fold a lot, or if they're going to call and then check fold on a lot of turns, for example, well, then raising becomes great. So you always want to think ahead about that. And you also want to size your bets appropriately so that you can make reasonable bet sizes or the bet size you want to make on the next betting round. Um, This comes up a decent amount of the time where you'll see amateur players raise to something like three big blinds before the flop, bet six big blinds on the flop, bet 15 big blinds on the turn, and then only have like six big blinds left going to the river. They clearly did not think ahead because the six big blind bet on the river is not really going to accomplish anything. It's going to have almost no fold equity. Um, Fold equity is the money you make from your opponent folding incorrectly. So you've taken away your opportunity to bluff. And also you... Well, your, your options there, you could have either bet bigger on the previous streets to give yourself more fold equity on those streets, or you could have bet smaller on the previous streets so that you now are left with a pot size bet or a two-thirds pot size bet on the river so your opponent could conceivably fold. So always think about your stack size and how that lines up. So um, the next thing we can discuss is playing before the flop. And this will roughly take us to about the first 100 pages of the book. You want to figure out which hands you want to raise when everyone folds to you. And you should have a very clear idea of where you are going to at least start your range. Now, you should certainly adjust your range according to the strategies of your opponents. So, for example, when everyone folds to you on the button, you may should raise as tight as 40% of hands or so if your opponents are going to be fighting back a lot and three-betting a lot and uh, re-raising a lot. Um, alternatively, if they're going to fold every time, you can raise, or not every time, but if they're going to fold everything except for their top 15% hands, you know, everything besides their hands like big Broadway cards and pairs and good suited connectors, well, you can raise any two cards because they're going to fold way too often. So you always want to have some idea of which hands you should start raising, but at the same time, you want to be willing to adjust. And as you get in later position, you can typically adjust more. From early position, you can't really adjust much at all because... If you raise, you still have to worry about everyone yet to act waking up with a hand. And if everyone yet to act is going to wake up with a premium hand, let's say one in 10 times, and there are eight people yet to act, the way you do that is you take the times they don't wake up with a premium hand, which is 0.9, and multiply it by, if there are eight people, you do that uh, 0.9 times 0.9, you do that eight times. And I don't know what the math is, but maybe maybe you'll run into a premium hand 60 or 70% of the time. So for that reason, you can't get too out of line from early position because you're going to run into a decent hand a lot of the time. Um, You also want to have pretty clear ideas of how to play when there are razors and limpers in front of you. And, you know, those situations are certainly very different, but you need to at least have some thought of how you're going to be approaching those scenarios. Uh, It's important to understand that whenever there are razors in front of you, you want to figure out what the razors are opening with and how they're going to defend versus a call or a three bet. 
if they're going to, for example, raise with a wide range, but then check fold every flop when they don't have anything, well, that's a great player to just call because they're going to tell you exactly where they stand after the flop. Most people don't do that in today's game. You're going to find in most small stakes games, the average player is going to be raising with a reasonable range before the flop, but will then continuation bet way too often after the flop. And against players who continuation bet too often, you can get away with raising them or um, generally just attacking them aggressively after the flop because they're not going to have anything too often. So that's certainly something you can look to exploit in small stakes and even middle stakes and some high stakes players. When there are limpers, it's important to understand that most limpers are typically playing pretty honestly in the small stakes games, although certainly some players do get out of line and limp with premium hands, looking to limp re-raise or even just limp call and completely trap you. And if you think your specific opponent is limping with a range that will be difficult to play against, just limp behind with a lot of stuff. It's perfectly fine to limp behind with ace-jack offsuit and 9-8 suited. You do not have to raise the limpers every single time. I know that a long time ago, a lot of people tried to get it, or a lot of people pounded into your minds that limpers must be weak. You should attack limpers aggressively every single time. And that's just not true. Um, Also, we discuss in this section playing from the small blind and the big blind. Those are spots where a lot of people make really, really big errors. And uh, you definitely want to be thinking about how ranges work and how you're going to be defending from those positions. And, um, you know, just you, you you want to have a lot of ideas of how you're going to approach situations as a default. And the thing you have to understand about preflop poker is that there aren't very many situations that come up. I mean, there's maybe, I don't know, 10,000 scenarios that come up. And this is why a lot of amateurs are actually pretty good at preflop play because it's not that hard. I mean, 10,000 scenarios may sound like a lot, but when you compare it to the, you know, 10 million post-flop situations, it's like a drop in the bucket. So uh, figuring out how how to play preflop is not particularly that difficult. But at the same time, especially in small and middle stakes games, a lot of players do mess it up on a regular basis. And if you study ahead of time and know rough starting ranges, which are outlined in the book, you will be well off. I'm also over at my site, pokercoaching.com. There we have a lot of interactive hand quizzes where you can go through and we will quiz you. And a lot of the hands that uh, you'll learn preflop ranges relatively quickly, just because you'll see that you know, you don't play a whole lot of junk unless you're in late position. Um, as I guess there's some general rules. If you are in early position, you pretty much have to play somewhat tightly. If the players yet to act all play very well and aggressively, you also have to play somewhat tightly. Um, if you are in late position, you can often open it up a little bit. And, um, you know, read the book is what it amounts to. Hopefully all of you, if you are here studying the book club, will be reading the book. So that's going to be it for today. Thank you very much. For taking a look at the book, you can always contact me on Twitter at Jonathan Little, and I'll talk to you next time. I'm Doug Behrens. Um, I play uh, locally here in bar poker and at running aces in small tournaments. Um, and I've been doing this about five, six years. I'm Andy Kaplan. Um, I typically play at running aces, the mid-level buy-ins. Occasionally play at uh, Turtle Lake and at Canterbury. I've been playing for about 15 years or so. Yeah, I'm Chris Gordon. I play in a couple of leagues with high school, college buddies, and friends. I'm Rob Washam. I play uh, just about everywhere locally, Canterbury, Running Aces, Grand Casino. Uh, I've been playing for about 20 years, just mainly small buying stuff.
and I got a couple poker leagues I play in. Doug Drabeck, I play most. Doug Drabeck, I play mostly in home games, and uh, a couple times a month at running aces, mostly in under two hundred dollar buy-in tournaments. Derek Smith, uh, I've been playing about twelve years. I play in a league that's been going on twelve years, and then almost always at running aces. Um, dailies and up to you know the 280 to 350 events. Uh, Brian Soja, I've been playing the game pretty much my whole life. I'm a former professional cash player. Uh, I don't get to play nearly as often as I do anymore, but anytime anyone tells me about a game, if I can make it, I'm generally there. John Somsky, I've been playing for about 30 years. Uh, home games, running aces, Canterbury, occasionally Vegas. Uh, side of the road, in a ditch, <laughs> pretty much anywhere, everywhere I'll play. Don't get to play as much as I'd like. That sounds kind of <laughs> Brian Mori, rec player. I've been playing, again, my whole life, but uh, predominantly tournament poker just for the last two and a half years or so. Locally. Taylor Moss, I uh, primarily play online, uh, so I play on like ACR and stuff like that. Uh, but we'll also find my way out to Canterbury or Running Aces, maybe like once a month or so. All right, so so the next piece, let's just do kind of the, the quick hitting uh, thing from the first section. Uh, for me, I think the, the key takeaways uh, were don't overuse bluffing uh, and try to semi-bluff whenever, try to bluff without. Um, bets need to have a purpose. Uh, the, the power of position became much more clear to me. Some of the other things that weren't as obvious to me about the benefits of position. Uh, considering hand ranges, not specific hands, was something that helped me. Uh, being aware of how others perceive my image, thinking ahead uh, was a, is a big thing that I keep trying to work on that this helped with. Uh, don't open limp anything. Um, having, needing a stronger hand to call than to raise. So even this idea with like ace-8, king-10, queen-10, that idea of raising or folding versus calling with that was, was very helpful. And uh, for me, I, you don't need to ha you don't have to raise the button. <laughs> it was a good thing for me to. Oh, I had no idea. I thought it was folded you on the button. You have it was a rule you had to raise. Uh, turns out Jonathan says you don't have to. And then finally, uh, playing smaller pots, deep stacked um, with a top pair or a over pair. Uh, what I was thinking about as I started to read the book, and I, he immediately gets into some balanced stuff that. Poker is uh, about everything all the time, and, and you get more into his book, you get even more of that on each hand. But, and his fourth chapter was about before the flop, thinking about, so it, a lot of times I wasn't doing much other than, you know, calling the bet or making the bet before the flop, but I wasn't thinking about all these strategies. What what should I do if somebody calls me or raises me? And so that was one of the things I, I know I have to focus on. Uh, but the other thing I was looking for was how do I get balance as to how many hands I play and things like that. And I haven't quite got that in the first four chapters yet. But you know, I mean, which hands do I play? How how aggressively? How many chips? How often? Some of this. So that's what I was thinking through that. The only thing you had mentioned it, Steve, too. Um, he's he's really firm about the open limp, which is interesting because. I think when you play the lower stakes tournaments, you see that all the time. And it's hard. I think when you take that down, you're like, okay, if everybody's limping, I have to raise, I have to raise. And it makes sense, um, but it's one of those things that it's sometimes harder to do, even though your brain tells you to do that. So it just seems like a lot of times you're like, oh, I got an okay hand, I'll just limp in for cheap. 
And little really tells you you should not do that. You should you should be raising there. But I think he's like, referring specifically to being the first one in the pot. In the pot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I'm sorry. Yep. Yeah, you're right. That that too. Yep. But even I think even later he talks about if people are limping, you have to you have to consistently punish those limpers. But yeah, so first in the pot too is mm-hmm. the same thing where it's especially in late position when he's I think he's saying it. You're in late position. You should be you should be coming in for a raise with a really wide range, which I still think is that's comes a bit difficult. It seems like though in smaller tournaments, I've noticed like I'll try to if the blinds are twenty five fifty at running aces, and three people limp, and you raise to four hundred, everyone's gonna call yep, you anyway. Exactly. So it, oh so yeah, was it worth? I'd rather almost look at you know if I have a mediocre hand, maybe look at see a flop cheaper mm-hmm. than you just can't get people off the hands. You you gotta look at each tournament differently. Right. I mean, in those tournaments. There's no way. That's why I love a lot because, that perspective. I mean, you, you raise to a normal raise. Say it's fifty, and you raise to one fifty, two hundred. Everybody's calling. It doesn't matter what they have. So, I don't know. It's maybe just looking at the hand and getting it in with what makes sense. Is it a good suited connector to get mm-hmm. in with and see a pot with or not? Well, let's we'll come back to that. That might be one of our conversations. We'll just keep the keep the points going here. But that's this a good discussion. I like the. The book, it, it brought out a lot of ideas that I hadn't really thought of or gotten into. I'm not sure that I necessarily agree with everything. Uh, <laughs> he seemed like his opening ranges were, were awful wide for mm. my, my comfort. They're not wide enough for mine. So it's <laughs> just like, what? Am I going to raise 7-3 then? Yeah, Little's way too tight <laughs> But then, um, you know, some of the discussions about pod, pod odds, I Still don't quite understand exactly or know that I agree, but I really like the stuff about the the semi bluffing concept and not doing a total bluff, or um, the importance of position. I'm still kind of learning through that. My my concept used to be that being at the beginning was better position. If I get to act first, that's better than acting at the end. So starting to learn and understand why being later might have some benefits as well. Um, he had a in there, um, he had to quote that all winning poker players are aggressive. So uh, I'm curious to see if everybody has that same same concept or agrees with that. He also talked about the most profitable situation is when you are significantly shorter stacked than everyone else. And I don't quite understand how that's a good... I, I don't feel like I'm in a good position when I have the small stack and everybody's way ahead. So, okay. we'll um, so yeah, yeah, so there's a few things that I'm still trying to... To understand or get, but a lot of good information though. Yeah, I thought it was a lot of uh, common sense stuff that you just don't think about. You know, it, you, as you read it, you go, well, "Yeah, that makes total sense," but you don't think about that when you're sitting at the table. Uh, one of the big takeaways for me though was a lot of times if somebody raises in front of you and you have this hand that you really want to play, you know, it's a king ten type hand. You know, you really want to play that hand. You end up calling behind and what he's saying is those types of hands you want to re-raise and you call behind on the hands that like small pocket pairs and suited connectors which is something I never really thought about and it really makes a lot of sense so you got that mediocre hand that you really want to play well the only way you can play it is with a raise and then that balances your range which you know normally if I'm re-raising I got aces kings or queens you know, if that's normally the way I would play. But now, 
after reading this, there's a lot of hands that I probably will re-raise with that I wouldn't before. So that's that. That was the big takeaway from that first section that I got. Yeah, a couple things I liked is when he talked about negative implied odds, which is kind of what you were just talking about. Hands where you have negative implied odds, don't just call with either fold them or or raise. And I tend to call with them, hoping you hit the flop. <laughs> exactly. Um, I liked how he talked about. I I think before this book, I would have put. Um, Put my hand first and then position second and a few things and after reading the book I put position first and um, I also like you know I, I don't tend to look, I look at my my um, size of my stack but I don't really look at other people's at least for a while until we're down close to the bubble and I need to do a better job of that so um, I like most of the people have mentioned just feel like he really hammers home the, the power and the necessity of aggression um, and there are a lot of key examples of where to use that and why and it makes a lot of sense. Um, a few things that I also took away or I think might just be good reminders that are kind of basic tenets of poker um, and it's good to sometimes go back over those and not get so linear in, uh, you know, in thinking strategy was just that the value of your chips decrease as you build a, a larger stack and the inverse is true as well. Mm -hmm. Um, just because there is a play there and it's positive EV, it doesn't necessarily mean you should take in a tournament. Um, staying a little bit risk-averse is sometimes important in a tournament. Um, the power of blocking bets on the river. I like that he discussed how it's important to make friends at the table. I've always kind of felt that way just for the good of the game, but in general, I, I think we could discuss more, but there's a lot of power in that. But the kind of main thing I got just was your level of thinking, keeping it even with what's happening at the table and thinking every play ahead. I think it's really important and he does such a good job of explaining why every play you make you should have a reason for doing it. Um, for me, the first time I read this book a number of years ago, um, I wasn't really balanced with my bet sizing preflop and the opening section of this book changed that. And it really allowed me to start uh, when I'm later to act, I mean, it, it became an automatic amount how much I was going to be betting before I even looked at my cards. And then if I was later to act, if I was in later position, in addition to watching everyone at the table and seeing their reactions when they looked at their cards and reading their bet sizes, I started auto-calculating in my head what my raise was going to be before I looked down at my cards. Mm -hmm. Whereas it used to be something where I, I was aware of what was going on, but then once I looked at my cards, then I started figuring out what I was going, going to, to make my, my raise, because we all know I, I don't just call. Um, <laughs> generally. Um, the, the other thing that I, I really liked in his book, that, or at least in the opening section, that a couple people have already touched on is the fact that as your stack gets bigger, the value of it decreases versus as it gets smaller, the value of it increases. And I think that that's a big tenant in poker that most people forget. Because most people are like, I've got a gigantic stack, this is awesome. Yes, that's great in tournament to have a big stack, but the value of that stack is it's diminished the bigger it gets. I think, just to clarify, it's per not the chip. value of per chip. Per yeah. chip. Yeah. 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 each chip Correct. decreases. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's but way better to have a smaller stack. <laughs> <laughs> Brian Soja, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Well, and he actually says that later in the book. It's really good right. to have a small stack. No, it's not really it, good it, to have a There small are, there are times when actually it's, it's 
pretty good to have a small stack. Yeah. Granted, in a tournament, you're always going to wish that you have a bigger stack <laughs> than the smaller stack because whenever you have a smaller stack, you're always at risk whenever you play a pot. Mm -hmm. So there is that to it. But there are spots that a, having a smaller stack is much more beneficial than if you have a big stack in that same spot. So. Uh, for me, the thing that he introduced into this is, so there, there is the aggression, but there are lots of caveats about when to use the aggression. And that's understanding your stack size, the opponent's stack size, and most importantly, the thing that he starts here and emphasizes throughout the book is understanding the players that you play against. And that is probably one of my biggest weaknesses. I seem to be able to zone in on maybe, you know, 10% of the people I play with. I get a good read on what they're doing. But understanding what someone's range is, and when I get to the river saying, could they hold pocket kings or aces or whatever, most of the time I have no clue. So uh, a lot of his concepts are about understanding how your players are playing their given ranges. And I think that's one of the strongest elements of the book that I need to work on uh, to improve my game. My big thing that I got out of it, and what we talk about it too, overall, you know, when we go through this is, of this anyways, is ranging. You know, looking at what people, you know, perceive them as loose, aggressive, or whatever, what they may open with, and, and try to, you know, go beyond that. And that can be good and bad. You know, depending on the situation, depending on the tournaments, and that's the big thing for me. Is uh, I play such a range of tournaments, you have to you have to change for every tournament size. A Monday night free roll to a thirty dollar tournament to a, to a two eighty or an eleven hundred is totally different play. So it's nice to think about. This is more play how actual poker players should play, right? If everybody was playing like. When you play in 1100, you're going to see more play like this, and you're going to be able to get better at ranges on those. It's going to help you as you go up in tournaments for sure. So. Yeah, I think uh, the first four chapters here in Jonathan Little's book uh, are extremely important. I think that they like help build what would be the foundation of a good poker player. Uh, what he tries to do is he essentially tries to break everyone's thinking down and say like. How are you approaching all these different situations? And let's evaluate how you're making those decisions because all these, what seem to be simple decisions poker players make can actually lead you down the wrong path to being kind of like unprofitable poker player. So he really breaks down, okay, pre-flop, what are you looking at? Why are you betting? Uh, when are you doing certain types of things? And I think those are extremely important. Uh, I think the things that resonated most with me are why are you making a bet? A lot of poker players, when they go out there, they go, flop looks good to me, I'm gonna throw out a bet. But what are you really doing? Are you betting for value? Are you trying to get your opponent to fold? And I think that is such a key concept that most poker players just forget about and they go, okay, what do I have to do in this much more complex situation? And really just break it down, why are you betting? And it can help your game a lot. And then I think the other thing that really resonated was opening ranges. I found it really important for myself to kind of take a step back, not be playing poker, and set up opening ranges for myself in different positions. If it's folded to me, I'm going to raise with these hands, I'm going to fold with these hands. 
then go out and play and actually compare what I wrote down to to what I'm actually doing mm -hmm. and why am I making those changes and I thought that was extremely beneficial to myself. Well I don't know if it was in this section but just because you had, we had a couple people talk about the watching what other people are playing one of the things somewhere in the book I, I remember a key thing that really stuck out to me was not just paying attention to or paying attention to what the other people are doing in a situation, but the idea that they may play differently against different people too. Mm -hmm. So you can't, where I was always, oh, this person's aggressive, this person's conservative, this or whatever, you can't just make that judgment off of seeing one hand or what, but kind of keep a track of, well, who are they playing against in that situation? And maybe they're gonna play differently as they get better because I wasn't necessarily paying attention to how they play against, who they're playing against when they're, other than when they're playing against me, what they're doing. Well, there's a number, a number of the questions that I brought up are kind of related to hand-ranging mm -hmm. people, so maybe that yeah. falls under that topic, because I think when you talk about hand-ranging somebody, you're saying, okay, what, what range do I put them on? And that's one of the key things is you'll, you'll hear that a lot with, uh, I think, newer players where they'll just say, well, I, I put you on king-queen. Well, yeah, but that, that might be part of mm -hmm. the range. I think, I think the more experience I get, at least, I think, you know, we have to start thinking about things in a range. How does, how does this flop, how, do my, how does my hand compare to their range of things, of, of which king-queen could be one of them? So I think your, your question, I think, is part of a broader topic about hand-ranging people in general. What range could they have, <laughs> recognizing that they might have a different range against a different player? Right. So maybe start, start there in terms of, let's, let's start with the broad category of how do you, how do you hand-range people, or what does Jonathan talk mm -hmm. about in terms of terms of that. Let's do that, but just real quick to touch on something you, you just said about how you you play differently based on what you observe of people, mm -hmm. but you had never thought to think about they might be playing differently against certain people. Well, if you're playing differently against certain people, mm -hmm. why wouldn't they be? And that's, that's I mean, that's really just the, the key in the lock, right? If you're going to do that, then so is everybody else, and adjust accordingly, right? Because mm -hmm. the image hand-ranging, which I, I find is really challenging, you have to take into an, an image when you're hand-ranging, and that makes it more challenging, but to that point, you're going to put someone on a different range of hands based on your perceived image of them, especially if you've been playing for a while. And so that's, when he talks about cultivating your image at the table, that's all about, like what Brian said, about people are going to range your hands based on what the image you're cultivating, hopefully, mm -hmm. if you're doing it right. Which then leads to understanding what their hand range is. So if you've, if you've cultivated a super tight image and they re-raise you, that's different than if you've cultivated a super loose image mm -hmm. and they, they re-raise you. Their range now is, is very different in those two situations, I would say. And he talks in the book about cultivate the image that you that's the opposite of how you play. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The note like, that I have that super says the optimal image for you is the opposite of your playing style, yeah. which mm -hmm. is... Right, and you're going to... I mean, you need to change that all the time. I mean, you can't play the same. you got to change it in different tournaments if people think you're tight. And that's what the better players do, obviously. I mean, that's why you see more, as you go up in levels, more, more fundamental play, I think. But, depending on who's in there, I mean, if you get in a tournament and there's five rec players at the final table versus five pros, you know, the pros you can tell are going to, you know, play to, <laughs> to take an advantage of that. And it's spot, it's so. such a, I mean, the range thing is such a big topic, and I know we could talk for weeks on that. So let me, let me narrow it down a little bit with the question that Rob had put out on the, 
on the guideline you had said um, regarding range construction, Jonathan gives us guidelines, but he also states that he plays large buy-in tournaments against elite competition. So your question was, what ranges do we use against the rec players we play against? Mm -hmm. And so I know Derek and Taylor wanted to chime in on that one too, but what you want to elaborate on the question at all? Or? Well, I just just observations when I'm playing. You know, I I try to range these players, and I, I you know you look at a flop and you look at what they're doing. It's real easy to range a, a rec player when they three bet you. Because you know they're doing it with ace-king, aces, kings, or queens, maybe. Maybe queens. Maybe queens. <laughs> they're usually just calling with queens. But if they're three-betting you, they usually got one of those three hands. And now, Jonathan, in after reading this section of Jonathan Little, my range is a little bigger now when I three-bet, right? So As it should be. That, exactly. So that's one, one place where the ranges are different. And then you see, you know, if you raise you'll get four or five other people that are going to call you just because, and they're going to call you with a big, big range, a lot bigger than this one that Jonathan Little is telling us what it is. Right. And that's what they show up with. So it's very, it's, it's, you have to be, it's kind of like a minefield when you're playing at the levels that we're playing as rec players. Yeah, you'll see people limp with ace-king too with three yeah, numbers exactly. in front of them. You know, those exactly. things that you, it's harder to range I think the recreational player, and that's and that's where that's where the question came up. How do you guys okay. range the rec recreational player as opposed to, if I'm playing against Taylor, I can probably get a pretty good, I probably could range him a lot right. better than I can some unknown guy in a thirty dollar tournament. At right, right. Well, that's where um, I think Doug mentioned earlier. You're sitting in a lot of the smaller buy-in tournaments. Mm -hmm. If someone limps into the plot pot. Their calling range to a raise after that point mm -hmm. is almost 100 mm -hmm. percent. Everything, <laughs> everything they limp with. Yes, yeah. exactly. It's greater than 100 percent. Yeah. <laughs> they usually have the call in before you've announced how much you're raising. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah. So what is their range? Yeah. Yeah. So what is the range of somebody that limps so, and then so calls a 5x bet with another? This, know, like, this ties into something that you had mentioned earlier, and and I believe in the, the power of this is. We're talking about these smaller, more recreational entry point tournaments, right? And if you, you see a bunch of limping and, and it, there's a bunch of limpers in, and, and what does a raise really accomplish at that point? Well, if you're having trouble ranging players, start putting pressure on them. Because as the hand progresses, you're going to start to be able to narrow their range. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of where you see three and four betting with lighter cards yeah, there's negative implied odds, but it also helps you start to thin the field and narrow your opponent's range. So that's what I would say to you is if you're sitting in a, in a late position in a, in, a, in a $30 tournament or $50, $80, it doesn't matter, and there's a bunch of limpers into you, don't stop raising just because you know they're all going to call. You're setting up what you're going to be doing later. It's not, I mean, the first section of this book, there's a ton of talk about pre-flop. And yeah, most of poker is pre-flop. But where your edges are going to come from aren't going to be necessarily from everything that you do pre-flop. It's everything you do after. And so pre-flop is really just a precursor to set up the actions that are available to you later on to help you determine what, your player, what you're going up against. So if you've got four limpers into you, and you're sitting on the, the button or the hijack or the cutoff, and you've got a hand that you want to play, absolutely raise. Absolutely. Even if, even if then all, the both blinds come along and all four limpers, and you're going seven ways to the, pop, to the flop, who's going to be first to act? 
Is it going to be any one of those other six, or is it going to be you? I'll check to the razor. Yep. Yeah. Every single time. And at that point, you have all the options available to you. Now, granted, it hasn't helped you assess what their range is, but it has given you all the power and all the options as to how the hand is going to proceed. Do Would you, you recommend raising more there to try to get it down to three people instead of seven? I think that if you start varying your three bet amounts based on whether or not you want people in the pot or not, it's going to be exploitable. Yeah. And so <laughs> To those who are paying attention. To those who are paying attention, yeah. right. Um, so, short answer, no. <laughs> uh, that, but that's, that's more, I'm comfortable with that, but if you're more comfortable changing it up just a little bit based on whether you want all six people in there or not, that's fine. But don't make, don't make it vast, right? This is and only it, like when the blinds are <clears throat> small and... Yeah. I yeah. mean, yeah. honestly, like this book talks about playing like 200 big blinds. Tournaments I play in, I play 200 big blinds for 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. You've dealt. You've gotten dealt three hands to play, and then, and then it's almost then it's back to standard game. poker. Then, then you should raise standard. I mean, it's when you know. But if you know this guy is an aggressive and he's in the beginning, or behind you, maybe you raise a little bit more, just depending on the people that are at the table. Yeah, too. and if you've got somebody, say for instance that it, this is a fifty dollars tournament, but you have someone who's in the in early position that is more of a not a professional player, but a, a stronger player, right? And they're in an early position and they limp. Definitely don't over-raise because there's probably a reason they limped, mm -hmm. right? And so they're they're hoping that something like this scenario happens where it goes call, 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 big three bet, right? Because that's how they're hoping to get paid with their big hands. Because they're worried about the same thing that you are, is that if this is a low buy-in tournament where in the early stages we're all so deep, if they come, come out for an opening raise of, you know, a standard... 1.5x or 2.5x or something like that, then the whole table is going to call them. But if they limp, then somebody else might wake up with, you know, king-queen or ace-queen or something like that. Raise for them, and now they can come come back around and, and get their value. So I think that's where you have, you, you have to be careful and understand, like Brian said, who your opponents are that you're facing. But your standard rec players, if it's four, four limps to you pre-flop, I've already figured out in my head, okay, I'm going to raise to this, as long as I look down and it's not, well, as long as I have two cards. Then I'm raising to this, right? And, and that's really to just set up things later on. And the other thing, too, to, to Brian's point, when you do make that raise, even though you're assuming, well, everybody's going to call this raise, if someone then four bets you, now, you've been able to, now you can put him on a range, and mm -hmm. now you, can, you have the ability to fold. And all you've done is done your, your typical raise that you've done as opposed to, a huger raise, and now yeah. you have to fold. More. Exactly. And then you are putting them on a rage. If everybody calls, you're, it's still hard to range them. But as soon as someone, re, re, you know, four bets you. Well, even if they call, I mean, you're still getting a range of. I mean, they called. They didn't re-raise you, so mm -hmm. now they've yep. taken yeah. away. They yeah. They've taken away all they the four bet you, right. so they That's don't probably have a four bet hand. Mm -hmm. And I think to Brian's point too, it's always important to take initiative. So even if you know all four people are going to call more than likely, it's still good to be the one that, that took initiative, because like you said, after the flop, you're now controlling the pot size, you're basically controlling how that hand's going to go, usually. Mm -hmm. Good. Alright, how about some, some quick hitters here? Uh, Doug, you made a comment you thought his opening range was too wide in early position. Yeah, I like his in middle and late position. to be. I need to be more aggressive. I still, if I have nine people to act behind me, 
I'm still gonna probably fold almost every hand there. Just that's just me. That I mean, pocket small pocket pair, pocket sixes. I'm probably still folding with nine people to act after me. Is it primarily because you think somebody will have a better hand, or you don't want to play out of position, or what's the what's the main reason why you you tighten up really a lot there? Um, just that I think there's too good a chance that out of nine people, a couple will have a better hand than me, and then I'm playing out of position, and why get involved when there's better chances when I'm middle to late position. And so what was his counterpoint to that? Why, why, why do you think his ranges were wider? Well, it's obviously exploitable. If I, if I raise under the gun, then everyone knows my hand range right there, and they can narrow it down to probably four hands. hands. So, <laughs> but I still... I'm, <laughs> I would still have a hard yeah. time raising there. I'd be like, I'm just gonna almost always fold every hand if I'm under the gun. Yeah. From what I remember, I think a big part of him including some of those like suited connectors and low pocket pairs is essentially giving you coverage on a lot of flops. Mm -hmm. uh, so say you raise under the gun and you have this really tight under the gun raising range and then the flop comes six, five, three they know you didn't hit that and they can represent something there. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're playing seven, eight, pocket sixes, pocket fives in your range, you still have a reason to represent, represent that flop as something that you Yeah, can I'm just saying I would do that more in middle. Yeah. So I'd play mm -hmm. seven, eight suited in the middle position. I just would have a hard time against nine other players playing it. And that maybe that's a flaw in my game. And I'll just, be, I'll, I'll play six handed then after, you know, I always fold my first three hands and then play middle position after that but I just have a hard time yeah but think about this if you raise early position with seven eight suited and you get three bet now you know in that games that we play that guy three betting is gonna have some big hand right he's gonna have ace king you raise under the gun king king queen queen he's gonna have a big hand because he's not gonna three bet you with air so now when you go into the flop you're gonna know right away whether you've connected or not all you have to do is call and you're going to call with suited connectors and small pocket pairs to a three bet, and you're going to know right away whether you connected with that hand or not, or whether he did. I mean, you're going to range him pretty quickly in the hand or the games that we play. Okay. That's follow, why you do it. To follow on that, part of the reason why you have such a, a bigger opening range preflop is because you are going to be facing three bets behind you. You just you just are, um, which means their their range is going to be much smaller and much stronger which means when you hit the flop and they don't, mm -hmm. you're going to get paid more than... And maybe it's just because I'm I'm more <clears throat> playing against where I only have 20 to 30 big blinds after a, a half hour anyways. And then at that point, it's like, well, if I raise 3x, someone's going to raise 9x. Am I going to really put my tournament life on the yeah, line? This is all deep stack. This is all deep stack, right, which right, I don't yeah. play enough of. So I, I don't know how I would play... You know, maybe if I played cash and had that deep stack, I would... I would do that more often. I think the answer is come back and talk about it in ranges. So if you're under the gun and you're playing a 65% range, mm -hmm. that means you're playing 65% of the time you're under the gun, regardless of what you're dealt. Okay? And you're going to not win 65% of the time, right? <laughs> so you're going so to have to get out of these hands. So if you're playing that many hands, I think if, if somebody came and looked at you and said, the guy's almost always in the pot, you know, he's a 65% player, he's pretty loose. You're not putting him on him very much. And he's in these aces turn with low, low buy-in terms. He's getting called by everybody at the table all the time. And when the bets are coming, now we're putting in 10% of our stack, 
30% of her stack at 50 buy-ins, uh, blinds. I mean, at 50, 25, 50 big blinds, you're seeing a third of the stacks on, on the table before you get past the turn, you know. And that's where I'm having trouble with the balance of the, the big ranges under the gun. And he, he takes that all the way to later. He's got a strategy for every position you're at the table and how you re-raise and what you see and when you three-bet. and. So, geez, all my chips would be gone by the third blind because they just don't get that lucky and hit that often. You know? Well, well your opponent's not getting lucky and hitting that often either. Yeah, yeah. And, and well, dogs are. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you bring up a couple of good points that are tied into that. Number one, you're probably opening for too big of a, an amount. And, and so, it, you know, when this book first came out and everybody started reading it, all of a sudden, instead of ever, everybody opening 3x, it was 2.5x. And this is the book that really changed that. Right. And now it's really kind of gotten lower. It's, you know, 2.2, 2.1, 2.05. Well, in really big it's tournaments. But in right, low buy-in terms, but in low buy -in, six, no. eight. I see 20x all the time. I'm like, oh, God. But that's where you are becoming better than them, is because you are the one understanding the value of those opens and that you can open with a wider range when you're opening smaller and controlling that pot so that when you do miss the flop and you know it's not a, a pot you can win because it, it hit your opponent hard or something like that, you're going to get out much cheaper than the people who are opening 5x, 6x, 7x, 10x, 20x, whatever, right? Um, well, I was just going to say that kind of correlates with what Doug was saying. If he wants to play a tighter range, mm -hmm. then his opening size should probably necessarily be larger so that people who are calling behind him aren't getting such a good price on hitting their hands Absolutely. against his. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're playing a wider range, then you need you need to be making a smaller because you aren't going to be have the better hand as often of the time. But you're still going to have position. And two-thirds of the time, nobody makes a, a, a given player doesn't make a hand. So that means if you have position and you play it well, you should be able to win two-thirds of the pots regardless of what your cards are. And because you're playing smarter and you're controlling the, the size of the pot, you say, well, if I'm opening 65% of the time under the gun, then I'm going to be a 65% loser. That's not true. You're going you're gonna to win, right? There are going to be times when you hit and you win or your opponent misses and you win and stuff like that. The, the point is because you are balancing your range and you, and you do have a, a bigger opening amount, when you win, you will win more than when you lose because you're controlling the action. You're controlling the size of the pot. So when you want to get value out of that pot, you're going to. And when you don't, you're not going to lose as much. So on that 65% open, even if you only win 20% of the percent of the time and you're losing 80%, you're going to lose less over time on that 80% than the amount that you're winning that 20%. And that's really kind of the goal of that. Yeah, you have to get used to widening your opening range, uh, and there's a balancing act, act to that. But you're going to, by through future street betting, controlling the size of the bets, controlling the size of the pot, you're going to determine who's getting the better end of that deal. And that's right. just real quickly, because yep. what, what Brian was talking about before about having a big stack and having the value be less. That's the I think the reason why he's saying. Because you have a big sack and you're playing deep, you can make those looser, you can play that looser range. Mm -hmm. You can't do that typically when you're shorter stacked right. in a small buy-in tournament. 
you have a very small window. Yeah, you have 18 away. bigs, and you yeah. open undergun to three, and you get re-raised to nine. You know, how do you feel now about your I would just recommend most clubs, rec so. poker players <laughs> start. The, I mean, I've been doing it more in middle and late position now, where before I probably middle position I would have folded nine eight suited. I'm playing much, and and I look back in the few tournaments that I played in the last two months, I can't hardly name a hand that I would have said I would have done differently, except I I just haven't. I mean, I'm starting to do this by doing it in middle position rather than early. Mm -hmm. But at some point, then I'll start moving that to an earlier position. But I just... Yeah, I think this whole thing is a process of getting yeah. confident. Because if you try this too much in early position, yeah. you're going to get... And then you're a passive player. All of a sudden, you keep folding and folding. And then you're down. You just lost half your stack. And you're going, crap, right. no, I can't play any hand. And It's the same thing with, like, you know, learning how to play suited aces. You know, the ace three of diamonds, that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. Yep. You know, I think it takes time to kind of learn how to feel comfortable playing those. So maybe early position is something... I think it's just the, the big issue for me would be, yeah, when you pick up aces under the gun and you, you know, you raise the two and a half X and everybody screams, you know, everybody just leaves. Right. And you're like, oh. You know, that, that's, those are unfortunate I've never situations. been in a tournament where I've raised under the gun and everyone okay. folds. So I just. Oh, my God. Well, it happens all the time. Oh, I, I just, <laughs> when I play that. Yeah. I've never had aces. aces. I've never <laughs> well, aces. Well, then, yeah, seven colors isn't good either. But let's, okay, so I want to just move us along. This, it's, it's all really good. These I'm going to try to make really more quick hitters. Like I said last time, <laughs> but it's good, right? I mean, I hate rushing this through this deal, yeah. but um, just a couple other comments. Um, Doug, you said something about you like the topic of reverse implied odds. I just never have thought about that before where I, I see so many people play King Jack, you know, Queen 10 thinking, oh, I hope I hit this flop, and then they do, and then they get burned. That, yeah, it's like, oh, someone called you with Ace Queen, and you just got busted. So I just like the, the fact that, you know, I'm either going to, I'm gonna do a lot more folding of those hands and either raise or um, or fold them now rather than always call and hope that I, you know, hit that magical ace, king, jack when I have queen ten. Mm -hmm. So it's just I, I I I think too many people I see that too many people will call with two face cards thinking well I got to call here it's two face cards and they don't realize that you can actually lose a lot of money there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it comes back to controlling pot size too that I I really like the section on you know before I think. A lot of people just keep putting raises and not realizing what they're doing, and people are calling them, going, "Okay, if you're gonna keep raising, I'm gonna keep calling you because I got a good hand." And but yeah. no, I really like. I mean, I, I just don't think about that enough. And now, last month, I've been doing that where, okay, I'm either gonna raise or I'm folding mm -hmm. it. And I tend to fold them more often now because I'm afraid that I don't know how to play them after a flop, but I'm still trying to learn that piece of it. And I think it's huge, especially you know, deep stack. I think understanding the difference between hands that have deep implied odds and deep reverse implied odds Correct, yep. are huge you know pocket fours all right i can hit i can collect huge if i don't i'm probably just can, can, can fold right in most cases yeah king jack what do you feel good about other than an ace queen 10 flop maybe king jack flop you feel good about a king seven four flop you're probably not going to get paid much even if you're ahead because you're kind of nervously approaching that whole thing mm -hmm. but yeah somebody's got king queen ace king all of those things so i think that's understanding what what are what is my potential upside with this hand and what's my potential downside? And you can see the distribution of pocket fours versus king jack is completely different. Later in a tournament, it might be a hand you just decide to go with if you hit. But early on, when you have deep stack, to all of a sudden you see people lose 100 big blinds because they hit a you know a jack high flop with king jack and, and bust the tournament. So I think that's a good point. Um, another one, Derek, you had asked about uh, equity simulators. What what was your your question there around you know do people work with those or what resources do you yeah, use? I, I just I, I don't remember specifically what chapter where Jonathan just said 
you should be working with equity simulators mm -hmm. a lot so you understand your as you're evolving your range you know how that fares against any two cards just random players against one two three opponents whatever and I think it's an interesting topic and I want to learn more and do more of that study myself and I'm just kind of curious of what people use to do that um, software or different things and or, I mean I've literally sat and dealt cards out and sat and yeah. you know, took my own notes. I've got one minute Rob had something. I have uh, Equilab okay. that's free you yeah. can get that free and I've also bought the Flopzilla okay. which is like 35 40 bucks something like that for a lifetime and both of those are Flopzilla is amazing. Flopzilla is amazing. You can do all kinds of really cool things with Flopzilla. Give, give us an example of well, how you use it. You can well, when you put a you put a range of hands in a Flopzilla, and then it'll you can randomize randomize a flop. It'll randomize a flop for you, and then it'll show you how often that range has what draws and what hands it made. It'll make top pair X amount of percent of the time. This this range against a random flop will make uh, uh, open-ended straight draw X amount of percentage of the time. So you can start really seeing how those different ranges handle each different type of flop. So if you, okay. if you range somebody, you put that range into Flopzilla and then just do some randomized flops, now you can see how that range is performing against yeah, because that, that would be good because I've always think like I use Poker Cruncher on my phone, just like specific hand, like right. oh, when you're looking back, I wonder what I had there for equity, blah blah blah. Assuming you go to the river, right? But I was I'm always curious about that. Like, okay, if I play nine seven of diamonds, how often am I going to get a flop that I can continue with? Right. It's and not. It's not. I don't want to. I don't want to know like how much will this win against Ace King if we see all five cards. So I'm not in an all in situation. I just want to know how many flops will I see that I'll feel good about, whether it's a draw of some kind or a pair or whatever that is. Yeah, and I, I think. Um, what Rob's talking about is really good and really valuable information, but for the normal recreation player, it's probably just one step too high. Uh, for a normal rec player, I think they should definitely just start with, when you have these types of certain situations on these types of flops, what is your equity against certain hands? So say you have ace-king suited, and you get a flop that's nine, seven, four with two of your suit. How are you doing against certain types of hands? And it kind of helps you develop how aggressively you should be playing those hands. So if you have ace-king suited and someone has top pair and you've got the two overs and a flush draw, you're in a pretty good spot, even though you're behind. If they have a set, you're actually, I believe, a little bit behind, but not like too bad. So like you have to like know how you are in certain situations, because if you have that ace-king suited and you know even if your opponent has a set, you still have, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but. 40% equity, 35, 40%, somewhere in that range probably. Seven or something. Just having that knowledge in the back of your head helps you play more confidently. Mm -hmm. And there's a huge advantage to playing more confidently. And Steve was kind of talking about this before, but to take another spin on it, when he was talking about like knowing what you're gonna open with and it helps you like simplify things, I think that makes you play more confidently. You get dealt your hand, you look down and you go, okay, this is one of my raising hands. Now I'm taking that decision out of my hand, head and I'm thinking about other things. So Doug was talking about pocket sixes under the gun. If you know that's part of your raising hand range, you're raising. You're not hesitantly ra raising and then if someone three bets, you go, oh sh crap, what do I do? I have to fold now. You know like you already have this plan set up in your head. And I think that's huge and I think the the knowledge of pot odds, implied odds, and 
stuff like that kind of well, that's where Equilab is probably good for that mm -hmm. yeah because you can put in ranges against ranges yeah and and get a really good no I, I think that's great but I'm just saying like for just the rec player that is you know playing well, every once in a while where else are you gonna you get gotta, that I think you gotta start a little bit lower than that Rob then I will have well, yeah, <laughs> I was just when I, I got here early, and I just sat there and would flop three cards, thinking, "What if I raised with ten nine under the era in middle position, and the flop comes this, and someone?" I was going through in my mind, "What would I do with this flop what, if they if I check and they bet? What would I do?" And that was really helpful. I've been doing that, just thinking about that. So I don't have the software yeah. to do. I mean, I I don't download the software. I'm sure I could, but just even going through that was helpful for a record. Well, another approach to that, and Jonathan Linnethal referred to it, but I've seen it in other places, there must be somebody, I have not stumbled into it, but in a poker book or something where they talked about hand table, memorizing hand ranges and tables where they say, you know, under the gun, think about this range to be raising with, and they move you through, uh, and then how to react. Uh, and he goes through that in these later chapters with which hands to play when you're at this many blinds and this. The problem is I don't have this encyclopedic mind that can <laughs> re recall all that when I need it and uh, say, oh shit, I pulled the wrong ring. Poker stove is still around. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. poker, stove. poker stove is really simple. I got and yeah, and that's simple. I think that's that's where to, to Taylor's point is a starting point. Yeah, that'd be something to start with. Like poker stove because everybody's. I assume has seen like those charts where it's just a big square with all the little the little squares in it like and like a colored arrow, right? Yeah, poker cruncher does. Yeah, that poker cruncher does it. And poker stove doesn't do it, but it does a calculation. It does a calculation, and something that you can actually put on your phone that's super simple. It won't give you equity, but it gives you percentage to win. Um, it's just poker odds. It's a super simple, cheap app. You plug in your hand, you plug in what their hand is, and plug in the flop, and it'll just give you a straight percentage of how often. If you can even just start there, because a lot of rec players don't even do that. They're just like, oh, I've got ace king, and damn it, I, you know, I missed the flop or whatever. Oh, okay, well, I pulled the table of just what, what are the odds yeah. to get a, a, <laughs> to hit a full out well, or and something? I, and I would say, I would say too, even just even understanding that there is a concept such as that. Yeah, for a lot of players, it's kind of a new thing. I remember when I first actually thought about this idea of equity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know it sounds funny, like you even yeah. think that there's an idea of like, what are my odds here versus just going, well, I think I could, I think, I don't know, maybe I feel, I feel lucky. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing where you just kind of move past that to there actually is some, there is some, something behind the decision making process where people are actually figuring out what are my chances of winning here. So even just, I think a realization that that is a concept and then, yeah, whether it's dealing out cards yourself or just finding somebody that published the, the odds or, or something simple, I think is a good well, start. Well, that's tied into this is he opened that conversation when he starts doing calculations in the first four chapters so mm -hmm. you have your hand equity but there's also fold equity. right mm -hmm. and uh, so it isn't just whether your cards are going to get to a showdown and win because we got all these other things so a, a hand equity of 30% might still be worth playing you know the pot odds and the fold equity and a whole bunch if, of other If you're playing coming. aggressively, that's where it comes back to. If you're, yeah. if you're playing passively, right. and you're always going, I hope they don't bet, or they bet, and should I call? <laughs> right. and then, then, I mean, no, that's, I mean, then all you have is hand equity. Yep. Right. I think that's the key concept is to win, you can win it two ways. You can either have the best hand or you can get your opponent to fold. Mm -hmm. And so fold equity is such a powerful thing. Now that means you got to put chips at risk, and that's why a lot of recs are like, well, I want to risk 5,000 chips, mm -hmm. but... How much do you want to win? You know, it's it's an interesting dynamic, the combination of those two things. So that's where if you can, if you can be aggressive with, so you get the fold equity, 
with hand equity, that's obviously your, your best case situation. Well, I think that's, that's a good point in the book too, is that yeah, he does introduce the math and talks about the math and goes through some of it, but he doesn't go overboard with it. There's, no, there's a lot of overboard that get really deep into the mathematics. Stochastic modeling. Yeah, the important thing with him is understanding the concepts and understanding why you're doing yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, like Steve says, there's more than one way to win a pot, right? There, there's tons of different ways to, to win a pot. Well, but to the aggressive passive standpoint, when you're passive, your options become much more limited. Mm -hmm as to how you're going to win that pot. You basically have to hit. You have to have the best hand. You have hand. to have the best hand. Mm -hmm. All right, so uh, let's, uh, oh, go ahead. One more yeah, thing. On yeah. I think as rec players, certainly in my learning curve, the biggest leap is folding, not giving credit to my hand equity. Those pocket twos still have a chance of winning against the pocket aces. But you dismiss that entirely because it's a small, and you, you forget all this other stuff that's going on there. They may, Maybe you could get them off those fat chance, but <laughs> in a yeah. low tournament, he, he says you're not, he's not folding as easy. But well, if you think he's folding, it doesn't matter if you have twos or whatever. Two twos yeah. on the board, yeah. and your two's up, he's not folding. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let, we'll make these really quick hitters. I got three more that were questions from Chris, so we'll take one. One lucky person gets to respond to the to the questions, and Chris, you can help me if, if I'm not if I'm not stating your question correctly. But one was you you had asked about. The pot odds, uh, he made a comment on page 28 to 29. If you think you are better than the opponents at your table, you need slightly better odds than break even. If you think you are worse than your opponents, you need slightly worse than break even. Also, does everyone agree with using pot, pot odds? I tend, to, I tend to fold if I think I'm beat, and I try to use pot odds to get more out of opponents who seem to be using it. So you want to elaborate on that? Or is that oh, okay. Yeah, well, so I'm not even sure I understand. Well, I don't understand his statement of it seems backwards or whatever, but yeah. but then as far as pot odds goes, when I'm looking at stuff, I'm like thinking, okay, instead of just looking at, and that even goes back to the last thing of this idea of, I'm gonna, I have all these situations, if I have these cards, I'm doing this, and if I have this cards, I'm doing this, and all set. Well, if I'm having a read and I feel like I'm beat, it doesn't matter if you're giving me really good odds. If I can't beat you anyway, why should I put anything more in? But if there's the people that play that, that, and I know they play that, then when I know I got you beat, I know I can go up to this amount, and you're going to call no matter what, even if you have nothing, because you have this idea that there's this pot odds, oh, I can't fold that because I put so much in now. Okay. Well, that really yeah. only applies on the river. Before that, that's where pot odds come into play. If you're sitting there with a draw, let's say you have a flush draw, and the flush draw is about 5 to 1 to hit. Um, now, if someone is betting 10 times the pot, you're not getting the proper odds to call. But if they're betting $100 into a $1,000 pot, then even if you get no more money ever goes into the pot, you're getting the proper odds because the odds that you're going to hit, you are flush and beat them, providing the flush beats them, um, will uh, go ahead and pay for that. So I think that's where the pot odds come into play versus... On the river, I think what you're talking about is if you're betting a very small amount of the pot, people might call you even though the chances of their winning the hand are much lower. They aren't really getting the correct pot odds, but they think they might be because they're just hoping you're bluffing or whatever the case may be. Yeah, and I think and I think your your first question about you know you need slightly better odds than break even if you're better than your opponents. That that comment the way that I interpret that is if I'm playing. Heads up against Phil Ivey, I'll take a 
I'll take it. You know, if, if I don't, if I got forty percent equity pre-flop. I'll just get it in against him. You're gonna have to get lucky to beat him. Gonna have to get, you know, I'm not gonna do beat. <laughs> I don't think I'll be able to outplay him. Okay. So I'll take a forty percent right. shot there to beat Phil Ivy heads up. That's an, obviously an extreme situation. Whereas if I'm playing somebody, if I'm playing my wife who's never played the game, I'm not even gonna take a sixty-forty flip. Because you figure there's better spots. Because be I think I'll be able spots. to win, you know, use that edge over the long run. So I think that's kind of the general idea of it. So if you're playing at a table where you feel like I'm kind of outmatched here and I'm not really getting the right pot odds, I'm not getting the, the 9 to 1 or whatever I need, but I'm getting, you know, whatever, 12 to 1 or something, I might just say I'm going to get it, or 7 to 1, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty good. Yeah. 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 But, you know, I might just say I'm going to get it in here because I need to make something happen. I need to get more lucky versus saying... I think I can all play this table. I'm going to wait for a better spot. So I think that's the language behind there. I think another way to word that is... <laughs> I think a better way to say Well, no, no, <laughs> no, I mean, no please. Just uh, another way <laughs> to look at what Jonathan was saying in the book was the weaker you are relative to the player, the more you want to accept variance. The stronger you are mm, yes. relative to the player, the less you want to ex uh, accept variance. So, for your example, playing against the Ivy, probably your best bet of playing him is to play all in a variance, yep. right? Just don't make one decision and don't let him make multiple decisions because over time he will make better decisions than you. Yeah. No, that's you're right. That was better. Well, more well said. Just, <laughs> and it, no, it's a different way to say it. But what, yeah, you should yeah. just take over leading this whole thing. Oh, <laughs> seriously? No, I, that's fine. But to that point, too, that's a good reason why it helps to know the pot odds. Mm -hmm. And that's where it gets really complicated. If you're a math, If you're a math person, I'm not a math person, and you know those odds really, really well, you can make better decisions. But when you're in that point where, it, at least if you know, if you're ballparking on the pot odds, at least that can help you make a better decision in that case. Starting that, to think about it, it's better than not thinking about it at all. Right. And that's why I say starting with something like just the poker odds calculator mm -hmm. is a huge help, right? Because if you plug something in and it tells you it's 25% to win, everybody knows what that is as a as an easy fraction, one in four, right? Okay, so I gotta get better than one in four on my money, or four to one on my money, to be in this pot, right? So if there's a $5,000 pot and somebody bet up 500, what am I getting on making that call? I'm getting 11 to one, right? Mm -hmm. I'm getting the 10 from the pot plus his one, that's 11 to one. Well, that's way better than four to one, I'm mm -hmm. never folding, mm -hmm. right? So just starting to think about those concepts, you don't have to go through a lot of the complicated math that, that is in poker to start understanding these concepts and applying them. And pot odds is probably the easiest one to really start kind of thinking about and understanding where you sit in relation to what's going on. All right, so two more questions, we'll, and we'll wrap up. This is the longest section for sure, but uh, Derek, I think I'm gonna have you take this question, you put your, your note out there, but Chris had asked about uh, something we talked about earlier where, where he said that one of the most profitable situations in poker comes up when you have a significantly shorter stack than everyone else at your table um, and then when you get short early, don't give up. But you mentioned that maybe you wanted to respond to that. Sure. I think a lot of people potentially wanted to discuss this. It just seems like it came up a little bit. But um, I believe what he's just describing basically is that, you, I mean, first off, from a decision standpoint, you've got it easy. You're jamming or you're full. I mean, you're not open racing, open limping, anything anymore. You're just jamming. So it becomes a bit of an easier game because you're just looking for good spots and hopefully having a little bit of equity. And jamming it in so from that standpoint it's it's easier to play but it's also more profitable because if if you're jamming like 20 big blinds and I'm sitting to the left of you with 200 I don't need much of a hand to call you so now your range is gonna smash my range my calling range generally unless I wake up with a huge hand I'm gonna call you down with 
seven, eight or something because it's a tenth of my stack. So typically you should be getting it in and getting called by worse. So you're going to have a you know much better equity, you know, I would think against a much larger stack calling off. Obviously people wake up with big hands too sometimes, mm -hmm. but I think that's what he's describing. So yeah, and he tend to describe profit in terms of expected value. So like the highest, some of your highest EV plays are when you're short stack because of things like that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, whatever. When people call you, you essentially should be ahead. You know what I mean? You should hopefully be getting it in better. Okay, and then uh, one last one, and Taylor, if you want to respond to this one, you can. Um, you, Chris had brought up the question about when someone leads into you and you're the preflop raiser. You had mentioned that that whole concept of right, yeah. of that when when you raise preflop, and then the flop comes and the person who's first act leads into you as the raiser, and what kind of what was well, your? Because well, I actually used to think that being the first one to act was the benefit, not being last. Being earlier in the hand was the benefit because I was in control then because I got the bet right away. And now all this concept is always, you know, oh, wait, you know, if you're on the button, you have way more power than under the gun. And so I think a lot of people might have been thinking, oh, he's got something really good because that's the way the books are saying. And I'm thinking, oh, I want to, I have a decent hand and I want to bet and I want to have the power. And but that's when you have a decent hand too. Right. So if you don't, then, then it's exploitable that we know you didn't raise. So I'm going to raise for sure. Or bet. This is sort of one of the topics he talks about early on under fancy plays, but it depends on yeah. your stack size. If you're if you're short right. stack like I am almost all the time, a really powerful play, if I came into that pot after you raised and I'm first to act, is is to bet out. Okay. Particularly if you think I'm very tight and that flop is, you know, eight, seven, five with two spades, and you look at your pair of queens and Doug's betting out on that happily as can be. <laughs> what, what do you do? It's just a hugely powerful position raised. Now people behind me with huge stacks might say, okay Doug, you want to be all in? <laughs> you know, so. I, I love oh. this situation. It, it's called a donk bet for a reason. Because <laughs> <Yeah>. donkeys <laughs> will do it as they say, the weaker players at the table. And if you go back to what Jonathan Little talked about earlier, there has to be a reason for your bet, and he lays out it's either for value, for protection, uh, for information, or as a bluff. And usually the donk bet is for information. Someone saying, I either caught a piece of this flop or I like it in some sort of way, I'm going to throw out a small bet to see what you do. And they're really testing you, and if you're folding to that a lot, you're giving in to exactly what they're trying to get you to do. Um, Jonathan Little talks a lot about how he likes to raise this bet, and it's something that I hadn't thought about before I read this book. I took that piece of information, I wrote it down, I highlighted it, and I said, I'm gonna try this. And it works so dang well. It's just unbelievable how they're betting for information. You just come back at them, and if you think about like this like leveling game of I'm thinking that you're thinking that you're thinking that I'm thinking type of thing. If they're betting and they're getting raised, what's going through their head is, do they have an overpair? Which they can't rule out from your hand. You, were you raised, raised yeah. you, you they bet into you and then you raise back at them. They can't take that overpair out of their, out of your range. And it makes it really tough for them to call. Yeah. 
it's it's a crazy valuable move, <clears throat> and I'm really glad I read this book just to see it. Um, likewise, just even calling that and seeing another turn card to see what they're going to do. How much did they mm -hmm. actually like their card? Are there cards on that flop? And what that turn card did. Did that turn card bring an over card? Now they're scared because they likely either hit that flop and didn't have this turn card, and now they might be scared of it. And you just kind of get into this like mental battle with them where you're in position because they're donk betting into you, and you're always going to have that value up position on your opponent. Yeah, like this, this was like a new term for me. And I wasn't even aware of this unwritten rule that if somebody bets pre-flop, you're supposed to check Jack's to them to that that's what you're supposed to do. Well, my thought is if I have something, I'm going to bet. Then if I don't, well, now it's, then I it's a written rule. Yeah. Now, now it's, it's a written, written rule. rule. Right. Well, why don't but we... Uh, but he talks about, too, that in limited times when you do do that, it... It, it creates something that confusion. is unusual. It creates, it creates confusion. Yeah. Yeah. So, it, I mean, it, it can create confusion, but I think um, Taylor's point is right that most time when you do that, a good player is going to re-raise you. It and can be very and effective. And then you're, it could be, then you're in trouble. Against a less experienced okay. player, it can so, be very effective. I know Stacy was coming guy. later. Yeah. He, he uses it quite a bit in, in lower-level tournaments because people just don't know what to do. They're like, oh, well, I'll just give up my ace-king. Mm -hmm. You know, because obviously you hit that flop, clearly. You know, so it, it can be effective, but yeah, most... I think more experienced players will, will see that and kind of put you to the test. Well, and besides just information, a lot of people, rec players, will lead up, do the dog betting. They think it's a blocking bet, or they're mm -hmm. trying to mm -hmm. they're trying to control the pot size mm -hmm. from early position right. mm -hmm. because they have a draw or whatever. So they think that if they put out a certain size bet, that they can just get you to call. They forget that you have the power to raise them, right? <laughs> and so they're, they're, they're saying that I have a draw, and so I'm going to put this amount out there because it's essentially right, and if you come along, then I'm still getting the right odds, and I can you know make money on it. And if you tell them, oh, no, 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 we're not going to play for the odds that you want to play for, we're going to play for the pot that I want to play for, now all of a sudden, even if they did hit that flop, or they do have a decent enough draw, now you're making the odds incorrect for them to still mm -hmm. come along. Mm -hmm. And they're going to check the turn, and then you can see what you want to do there, too. Exactly. Yeah. All right, well, let's, uh, let's wrap up part one. Thanks, everybody. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack has the best poker room in Minnesota, featuring 24-7 promos on all cash poker games, including earning $2 per hour in comps, plus the most player-friendly tourney structures. Visit runaces.com for daily promotions and the tournament calendar. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack, the official sponsor of Rec Poker.